may be seated, friends. Lord, as we come now to your word, would you pour out your spirit? Meet us, Lord, we pray, your own name. Amen. In 1629, there was a papal legate on his way, halfway around the world, to check on the Jesuit mission to China. Now, the Jesuits were a monastic are, a monastic order that were committed to the basic three monastic vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. But they also had three other commitments or three other emphases. One of those is that they were committed to carrying out the Pope's direct orders to each and every one of them individually and confidentially, no matter what those might be. Those have sometimes gotten the Jesuits into trouble or caused trouble for others, but that was their commitment. They were committed to study and learning. They were committed to mission to the farthest reaches of the world. And once there, they were committed to learning as much about the peoples to whom they had gone and assimilating as far into the culture of those peoples as they thought possible, as they thought they could push it. There have been some famous Jesuit excesses and failures, primarily due to that first of their special commitments. But when they get it right, wow. When they get it right, they really follow that incarnate way of Jesus. They go into another culture and they honor that culture and they learn from it. You might say that their way is a way of confident humility. It's a way of confident humility. So 1629, a fellow named Andre Palmiero arrived in Beijing. He was Portuguese. He was sent by the Pope to check out the Jesuit mission in China. He'd heard some things, or Rome had heard some things that were troubling them. They'd heard that the Jesuit mission there perhaps had overdone the whole identifying with the local culture thing. And they were too sanguine about how much truth they felt could be found, say, in, well, Confucius. So Andre Palmiero arrives. He's impressed with the quality of the priest, the quality of their commitment, the quality of their work. He has his doubts, though. He feels that the mandarins are haughty towards the poor. He notices that there's polygamy in certain ways in the culture. And he notices that the Confucian way has a lack of a belief in a creator God or the idea that history is going anywhere, that there's a goal, a telos. And he feels like, yes, there is some truth, but he says, you know, there's truth in any system somewhere. And he feels like the gap is bigger between the way of Jesus and the way of Confucius than the Jesuits felt like. And he doesn't know what to do. What is he going to report back about this way of confident humility when he returns to Rome? This morning, friends, we're on the middle week of a little three-week walk that I'm calling intangible. We're talking about 
cultural commitments that we want to have here. Not analyzing our larger culture, but talking about the culture that we want to create here. Last week, for instance, we started out talking about being genuine and whole, or we said that one could be put as courageous vulnerability. We talked about how we have the root to be courageous and vulnerable because of God's hesed love. We talked about how Jesus fulfilled and embodied that hesed love, and then on the flip side, this, this side of the cross and the resurrection, that there's a joy that comes from having known that embodied love of Jesus. And that that gives us the ability to be courageous and vulnerable. Courageous vulnerability. We talked last week about how these three sermons on our cultural commitments or cultural aspirations, these are, they're not meant to be political speech. We're not saying we should be this way. We're talking rather about how do we find a place to, to stand in order to live into these things. This one is about confident humility. It's about being gracious and truthful or about confident humility. I want to say that that is a way to stand within our own culture and for us to learn to stand also in our larger culture as well. And we'll see this morning in Paul's famous passage from 1 Corinthians 13 that we have what we might call a sandwich. We have confidence for humility based on confidence. We are, or a better way to put it, we have confidence, reason for confidence, reason for humility, and reason for confidence. Three quick steps in what Paul says. So Susanna didn't do this. She read well. But we've all heard 1 Corinthians 13 at a wedding, right? And the wedding reader is nervous, right? Because they never do this. And when you get nervous, you read too fast. And so they go through the love is patient, love is kind, blah, blah, blah. And they're just barely making it, but they're about to run out of breath. So they get to that next paragraph and they, you know, and then they say, love never ends. And they just sort of rush through that bit. Our first reason for confidence is that love never ends. Our first place to stand, if you will, is that love never ends. A more literal translation of that little sentence is love never falls. This is a bit of vindication of the English. If you want to be emphatic, use a double negative. Paul loves to say, stand firm in your faith. Take a stand. Stand is a big verb for Paul. And he likes to say, the way that we live in the world around us is to be a people in the body of Christ who take a stand in our faith. In a sense here, he's both giving the way and affirming that, but he's doing it in a double negative. He's saying love never falls. Love will always stand. It never falls. So our first reason for confidence is that hesed love of God. It's the fact that we are beneficiaries of an undeserved, lavish love. It's the fact that our God loves the world, each person. 
the fact that our call is to love even our enemies. So our first cultural aspiration in terms of confident humility and certain terms of being gracious and truthful is that our love, the love that has been poured onto us would flow from us and would be the way we interact together. And we have great confidence because standing on and in love is really a great and a wonderful and a beautiful and a happy way to stand. Even if people don't agree with us, don't agree with you, don't agree with each other, standing on love is a great place to start. And the second one is we have reason for humility. We're not there yet ourselves. We see some things, and those things that we see are real, but we don't see everything. Paul says, as for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part, and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, a quick note, Paul's not against these things. They're good things. Prophecy is a good thing. Tongues is a good thing. Knowledge is a good thing. Karl Barth once said, though, when the sun comes up, the lights go out. You just don't need them anymore. But they're lights. They're good things. But when the sun comes up, they're subsumed into the sun's light. So you don't need them. So Paul's not saying that the time is over for them. He's saying that we need them now and they help us but they don't give us everything. They don't show everything. Paul says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. Same thing. He's not insulting children. Jesus called us to be childlike, and Paul knows that. He's just saying that there will be a day when we will know more and we'll see more and we will have moved on. But we have great reason for humility in that Paul tells us next, for now we see in a mirror dimly. Literally, that is, we see in a mirror enigmatically. The Greek word there is enigmatic. It's, it's where we end up with our word enigmatic. And Corinth, as a city, was a, was a city that was located on the water. It was located on the isthmus. It was a massive trading city that was important. You really couldn't make your way around without stopping in and dealing with them in some way or another. And one of the things they were known for was the best brass mirrors in the Mediterranean ancient world. They made the best brass polished mirrors of anyone. And Paul knows this. So he's giving them an image that works for them. But while they know they made the best brass mirrors, they also knew that brass mirrors aren't, you know, all that great. You know whose face it is. It's good enough to do that for you. But it doesn't show you everything. The detail isn't perfect. And even if it were, it's still just a reflected image, not the thing itself. So Paul's saying again, He's not critiquing anybody. He's saying what you see is real. What we have been given is real. What we know is real. But it's not everything. We see as in a mirror dimly. The Jesuits were right 
to go into China or wherever it was and to run into this, in the case of China, this ancient culture that was so impressive, so complex, so learned, so accomplished, so innovative in so many ways, and to say there must be truth in Confucius. There must be. How else could the good aspects of this culture have come about? And to take a confident but humble posture to walk into those teachings and that culture and to take it as far as they felt they could take it. It's something like thinking of there must be a third way or maybe a fourth way or maybe a fifth way. I see this, you see that. There's something that's different for sure, but there also may be things that we agree on, but there also may be places neither one of us have yet seen that if we talk together, we end up coming to. I was a journalism major as an undergrad, and one of the fun things I did was pre-digital photography. Took a photography class, and we'd be, we shot black and white, and we'd be in the black, in, in the dark room, and learning all that stuff. It was great fun. I found it was also one of the easiest places to start to talk to people of, of any, any situation in class that I had in all my undergraduate years. I got some really interesting conversations with folks. I mean, you just sort of, once you get, once you get it, you're just sort of doing the stuff and you're in the dark room and there's not a lot of distractions and people start talking and oddly they'd start opening up. So I had this friend named Beth and Beth had grown up in kind of a, a mainline church that wasn't quite sure what they believed and she was not really enthusiastic about the faith, but she wasn't really ready to walk away from God either. And so we'd talk. We'd have these long conversations. And then I'd, I'd find myself thinking about them later. You know, how did that go? What about, hmm, that's interesting. Never thought of what she said. You know, so on and so on. And I finally, one day, I remember the day I realized we cannot both be right. We could both be wrong to some degree, but we can't both be right but it doesn't mean we have to only be in a posture of disagreeing either. And they were always good conversations. We weren't fighting. It was, it was good. I never, I never left the confidence of my faith in the resurrected Jesus, but I learned things from her that I had never known about simply the way people in her context see the world. And there was a way of interacting with her that both helped me to grow, and also helped her to see the resurrected Jesus in ways she'd never seen them before. These situations are highly individual. They're often not simple. They take a lot of trust. They take space to breathe and to calm down. And sometimes that's not there. When it's not there, it's almost impossible to get into that space. When it is there, it's a gift and it's a blessing. The third one is our confidence derives of a secure future. Paul says, we see in a mirror dimly. He says, but then we will see face to face. No more reflection. Not even a great reflection. Not even a clear reflection, but direct. And when we see face to face, we will know the depths 
of the one into whose eyes we look. Paul has already, or, or he will say rather in his next letter to the Corinthians, he'll say that we see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And then we will see face to face and we will know the glory of God and we will be shaped into the image of the face into which we look. And Paul says, at that time, because we will see face to face, he says, then we will know fully, even as we are fully known. So even now we're fully known. Our confidence is in the call to love, to stand in love. And our confidence is in that we are fully known. God knows us through and through. He holds us. He knows our story. He knows the potential that is there that will be realized when we are brought into being our fully true selves. But he also knows that we're not into that space yet. But he's still here. He's with us. He's in it. So we have great confidence in this love. We have confidence in humility, in a posture of humility. And we have confidence that God is in charge and working it out, and he's got it. This is a good way to go about living in our world. We live in a society that is profoundly changed in any of our lifetimes, profoundly changed and changing, some would say, more and more quickly. There's an acceleration of change as well. G.K. Chesterton, over 100 years ago, Rene Girard, brilliant Catholic, social critic, anthropologist, literary critic, both of them in their own ways said that one thing going on in Western culture is that the virtues have become pulled out of the story that gave them to us and absolutized. It's an ironic thing. Think about it. They're still good because they come from the Christian story, but they've been pulled out of the weave and made into absolutes on their own. It's an ironic thing for us to interact with because we can't and don't want to call them bad, but yet they are born of a story that has to do with one who lived and one who loved us and one who gave himself, and they're meant to work in that story. So it's a, it's a not easy place to be in, and it calls for a lot of nuance, and often then we feel like we want to nuance things to death, and they have to nuance them so much that we can't get anywhere. Throw in our culture's idols, individual freedom, self-sufficiency, efficiency, and the way that our work cultures have developed to be able to do efficiency and to make us into beings which, with the data and analyzing the data and all the rest, are conditioned into this kind of efficiency. It's not just individual issues. It's a whole water we swim in. It's a cultural difference. We're in a largely cross-cultural way of living. It's a volatile and a powerful and a very fluid kind of a thing. I want to say that the Jesuits are a help. They give us, it's not perfect, they give us something to look at, an analogy to look at. I want to say that this idea of confident humility gives us a way to stand in our larger culture 
in which we're not against, but we're deeper. We know why when we agree, and we know why not when we don't agree. And we've got ideas and a belief that is still connected to the larger weave. But whether we're agreeing and we know why, or whether we're disagreeing and we know why not, our stand is still in love. Our confidence is in the cross of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. Our humility is because we need that cross. We wouldn't know that the virtues were part of a weave of a larger story if we hadn't come to that cross. We need that resurrection hope in order to believe that there is a telos, a goal, a somewhere that we will go where our true self will be realized and we will know fully even as we're fully known. So what happened with Andre Palmiero and the Jesuits? Something very amazing happened. About a week after he left Beijing on a ship on his way back to Rome, about a week after that, there was an eclipse. And for what I think, I'm no expert in this, but what I think was only the second time ever, the Chinese astronomers got it wrong. They got the date wrong. And in that worldview, that was a big deal. And the ripples were immense. It signaled that they were out of touch with the will of the gods. And so it was a poignant moment. So there was an astronomer, a scholar named, and my apologies, named Zhu Guangyi is the best I can do with the name. It's a, I love it. I love the flow of it. I hope I'm in the ballpark. And he saw the moment. And he went to the emperor. And he said, I know some astronomers who didn't miss the date. And the emperor said, oh, that's interesting. And so astronomers were brought who were Jesuits. And they, under the tutelage of Guangyi, were actually brought. How did this amazing thing in the 1600s come about? It came about because of a Jesuit named Matteo Ricci. Matteo Ricci was Italian. Matteo Ricci went in the way of confident humility to the empire of China. And he stayed and he stuck. And in the way of confident humility, he learned their culture and he adapted. When he died, he did this so well that when he died there in his adopted land, he became the first ever foreigner to whose remains the emperor granted a plot of land for burial. Big, big deal. Matteo Ricci met Zhu Guangyi, and Guangyi became a brother in the Lord Jesus of Matteo Ricci, while remaining a Chinese astronomer and scholar, of course. The Jesuits then began to dress in the long flowing robes of Chinese scholars, those who who moved into that space. And it was noted that Guangyi began to treat the poor with more compassion. It was noted that he was adapting to believe that there was a creator God, that history does move to a fulfillment. Guangyi appointed Johann Schreck. I have no idea. I just don't know. I don't even care. I don't even actually like that movie that much. Guangyi appointed someone named Johann Schreck, an outstanding polymath, a Jesuit from Germany, to head up the new astronomical work 
and Shrek met with amazing success until something else happened. Shrek being a polymath, he was interested in everything. And just to prove that you can take anything, even a good thing, too far, you can go too far with cultural assimilation, Shrek had heard that a particular herb was nice and spicy and hot, so he tried it, and a few hours later, he was dead. Even good things can be taken a step too far. It's not easy. Living in our day, in our moment, having a belief in a unified story that we believe is the story of everything, a great meta narrative, and then working in a highly efficient culture that is set up to run by things that aren't completely opposed but aren't in the same story either, it's not easy. There are places that are congruent and there are places that are highly discongruent. We can learn the way of confident humility and it'll give us the ability to keep that gospel core and also be flexible and approachable and loving and walk in the tensions we need to walk in. Invite you into prayer for a few minutes. We just think about this together invite you just to imagine yourself in your own context, whatever that is, the places where these things get difficult for you, where you feel a stress and a tension. You find that maybe later you look back and reflect and maybe you feel like you lost yourself. You weren't true to who you want to be. You felt nervous about the whole thing. Or maybe you just felt inadequate. You just felt pressed and hurried and scattered. I invite you to go into one of those places and just imagine Jesus standing there with you. Just imagine yourself being okay and at peace. Even if you aren't sure why or how that works. Imagine yourself even in those microseconds being able to think, to be yourself, to choose to love to choose to know that God holds the story and the future. Imagine yourself somehow not violating your conscience, but also not tightening down and not feeling paralyzed inside. Paul wrote in 2 Timothy, he said, for God did not give us a delicate spirit, but a spirit of power, of love, and of a sound mind. Lord, give us this spirit, we pray. It's your spirit, Jesus. And you, Lord, you walked a path of confident humility. Of all people, you did this. You kept the plot, you kept the story, you connected the dots, and you loved. Come, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.